Good morning. Good morning. If you would turn your Bibles to Genesis 42, that's where we're going to be for the remainder of our morning. And my hope is that we do not see Genesis 42 as uh, anything but encouraging. Encouraging on a whole bunch of fronts, but uh, and we'll get to the ones that um, are, I think, the, the, passage, the passage are bringing out for us. But before we do, let us go to the Lord in prayer, and let us ask of him to make these words impact our lives together. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, creator of all things, all that has been, all that is, all that will be. Lord, we are humbled to sing of the gospel of grace this morning, of your loving kindness that is set in, set, that you have set on us, on your steadfast love that endures forever, on the promise of grace when we come to you and ask for forgiveness. And Lord, of the reality for those who are of us who are in Christ Jesus that we no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in us. Lord, thank you for your words. Lord, your testimonies are true. They are wonderful. <coughs> and Lord, we pray that you would turn our souls to keep them. The unfolding of your words gives us light Lord, so impart understanding to us, simple people. Lord, we love you, and we want to sing with the psalmist. Lord, that we pant for you, for your grace. So, Lord, turn to us and be gracious to us, as is your way to those who love you. Lord, I pray that this would be true of all the gospel preaching churches in Brandon. Lord, that your word would thunder forth above all earthly powers. Lord, that you would be made known this morning in the ears and the hearts of man as the pulpits across this town as they ring forth your gospel, as they proclaim your grace. Lord, steady our steps now as we dive into your word and we see what you have for us in the life of Joseph. Lord, for you are great and glorious, the God of all providence, God of all things to come. Lord, you are the one who put our paths before us and we ask now that we'd be able to faithfully and humbly walk in your ways. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 42 is, uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but at the end of Genesis, but it's also in the middle, right dead smack in the middle of the story of Joseph. Not necessarily if you're counting by chapters, but this is the turning point of the Joseph story. We haven't been here for a while. In fact, it was February. I checked, I was trying to figure out when was the last time I preached on Genesis 41, and it was February 12th. Uh, so we are in June. Uh, it is June 4th. Hello. Half the year's gone. And uh, here we are, back in Genesis 42. Let me ask you this question. 
Do you enjoy reunions? Depends. Amen. I hear you, Allison. I think we all enjoy reunions of certain sorts. Like I grew up going to family reunions of the Robinson and Stokes family. And every year we would get together in a, uh, in a gym and we would celebrate Thanksgiving together. This was 100 to 200 people at one time that you were all related to in some way you have no idea. But it was good to see them once a year. And uh, there was a point at which the Stokes and the Robinsons had more of a Hatfield and McCoy feel, Hatfield and McCoy kind of thing going on. Not like legit, like no, no shooting at one another. But there was some real tension that happened in there. And that next reunion after the tension kind of erupted, it was a little bit weird. It was a little weird becoming back to family. And so I want you to think about that idea of how the tension that we create between one another is, is, is there for a reason. And in, in this case, for our, the ring ring that I was a part of, it was to bring us closer to together. I mean, I, there was no actual, it was all based on a big misunderstanding, guys. One person thought they said another person said something, and it was a big mess. But here's the deal, reunions, must happen before reconciliation can happen, right? You have to come together in some way to see one another in some way so that you might be reconciled to one another. Um, Today is not a story of reconciliation per se, but it is the story on the path to reconciliation. So with that, Genesis 42 comes in a context, and I'm going to back up to Genesis 38, 37, because if, it's, if I don't, then it will probably not feel as weighty as it should. See, Joseph comes onto the scene as the first son to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And that happens in Genesis 36 or 35. And even though he is son number 11 of 12, he is the favorite son of Jacob's favorite wife. Joseph is the crown achievement for Jacob's labor. Labor, In fact, Jacob labored for 14 years. I don't know if remember the story, but he worked for seven years for Rachel's hand and he got Leah. And then he worked another seven years and got Rachel. And so even in the midst of all that turmoil and the working, he is, uh, Joseph is the product of that, uh, that 14 years. Joseph is the crown achievement of Jacob's labor. Like I said, he's the highest good of Jacob's life. The promised son that he thought would bring about the promises of God. Remember, Jacob is in the line of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And so he's given, Jacob, Joseph, is given dreams that seem to be a confirmation of sorts to Jacob's hope of him being the promised son. But then after telling these dreams to his family, Joseph is sold into the hands of slavery. He's sold into bondage, taken to Egypt, falsely accused, imprisoned, forgotten. Joseph's life's not easy. It may have been easy for the first 17 years, but it was not easy after that. Nothing was easy for Joseph. And for 13 years, Joseph endures hardship after hardship, trial after trial, and yet he continues to trust in God. He trusts in God's providence. He trusts in God's will. He trusts in God's ways. 
And in the middle of these 13 years, well, year 11, he has the opportunity to interpret a series of dreams for Pharaoh's household. First the cupbearer, then the baker, both come true. And then while he waited to be remembered by the cupbearer, God providentially gives Pharaoh nightmares. Everybody's really familiar with this story. Nobody could interpret the nightmares except for Joseph, who had been planted in the garden of Egypt so that the flourishing of the Egyptians and the world might take place. God's providential hand put Joseph in the exact right place in the exact right time, and he did it through means that none of us would choose. Who of us would choose slavery? Who of us would choose being falsely accused time after time, imprisoned? Who of us would choose being forgotten? And yet this story is so beautiful. It shows us God's grace every step of the way. It shows us how God takes complex lives, messy people, and he turns it to beauty. He shows the glory of his name through the complex and sinful lives of human beings. He does it all over the scriptures, and he definitely does it through Joseph. So this morning, we come to Genesis 42, and I'm going to have you sit because this is 38 verses long, and I would like you to listen and hear the word of the Lord instead of worrying about your knees. Genesis 42 starts this way. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look after one, look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all servants of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they say, They said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father. And one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. And by this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place until, unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, you surely are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. And on the third day, 
Joseph said to them, do this and you will live. For I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the fam grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words shall be verified and you shall not die. And they, and they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace, replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack and to, to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money at the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is to this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in their, what is in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons, if I do not bring, back to you, bring them back to you. Put him in my hands, and I shall bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. And he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. The word of God for the people of God. You see, this story kind of breaks down into three movements and really only two points. Three movements. First movement is verses one to six. And you see that hearts are are unchanged. Verses 6 to 28, yes, there's overlap. Verse 6 to 28, hearts are tested. Verses 29 to 38, hearts are still unmoved. And I want you to follow with me and notice one thing that there's, we start in Canaan and we end in Canaan. In the middle is Egypt. 
but they have to go through the valley to see what they have and what they don't have in the end. See, unchanged hearts will not and do not seek the things of the Lord. That's what we see from these first couple verses. Our text opens with Jacob hearing that Egypt has grain to buy. Uh, in fact, he says, Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt. This is good news that there's grain for sale in Egypt. But then he says this, why do you look at one another? And he's talking to his sons. I think there's something going on here that we should all notice. We haven't heard from the brothers for a long time. And we haven't heard about Jacob since Genesis 38. But not much has changed, has it? Jacob is still grieving the loss of Joseph. And his brothers are victims of that grieving. I say victims, and not, not like a, um, he's doing, Jacob's doing something active against them. But it's what he's not doing that is the problem. See, they haven't changed. And they're not growing into the men, the fathers, the husbands that they were called to be because Jacob hasn't shown them what it looks like to be a good father, husband, or a man. Jacob is still 20 years before this. He's still stuck in 20 years prior. He's still stuck in the nostalgia, the loss of his son. And his sons have not grown up. How do we know that they haven't grown up? Well, nobody was doing anything about the famine. Simple as that. Not even Jacob. Notice, he, didn't, he hadn't been doing anything for 20 years. He hadn't been preparing them for this moment. Not that he had a dream or anything like that to show them that this was coming like Joseph did, but the fact that he had not prepared them to deal with life as it comes. How to walk faithfully in the promises of God. He has left them back 20 years ago when he dismissed them. And he said, my son is no more. See, Genesis is a grand narrative that ties a bunch of things together. It's a story of the formation of the people of God, and Jacob is continually falling on his face in this aspect. He's not forming his family around the promises of God. He doesn't show them how God ought, God says to ought, they ought should, to live their life. They're so dependent on their father Jacob to show them what needs to be done. And this is an indictment upon not only the brothers, but on Jacob. So, see, he's so stuck that in this, in this moment that he says one, the one thing that will keep him tied to the 20 years prior. He says, uh, he didn't say it, but he doesn't do it. Uh, Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Jacob is stuck. Go to the end of the text, verse 37. What does he say? Or verse 38, he says, my, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. He's so stuck that he can't even see what God has blessed him with. He can't even see the other 10 brothers. He can't even see the, the abundance that, may, or that is in front of him, the evidence of God's grace. He's so unchanged by the death of his son that he is stuck 20 years prior. He hasn't sought to even remember the promises of God for himself. So here we come. First moment of application. Ready? Fathers. It sounds like just a father's thing. 
but it also goes for mothers, grandmothers, grandfathers, sisters, brothers. Who are you? If you are the Lord's, then you primarily have one vocation, and that is to know God and to make him known. What do I mean by vocation? What has God created you for? God has created you, Christian, for the purpose of making his name known. It is for glorifying him in no matter what circumstance you are in. Just primarily, right? That's the basis, the foundation. It is to make God's name known. And Jacob cannot make God's name known because he is stuck on the loss of what he had idolized. His son, Joseph. Your primary vocation can be said this way, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Christian. The love at which you love your neighbor is comparative to how much you love the Lord. In fact, you cannot have true love for your neighbor unless you love God. This goes for every one of us who know the Lord. We are required to deepen our knowledge of God so that we might not forget. And we are to grow in our relationships with one another so we might spread his fame. But here's the the kicker about this. And we often forget, this is what Jacob forgot. Your neighborhood does not begin at your doorstep. It does not begin when you go to work. It does not begin when you leave your driveway. It does not begin when you enter your driveway. It begins when you wake up next to that man or woman that you are married to. It, is, it begins with your children and your grandchildren and your great-great-grandchildren if you're so blessed to see them. It begins with making God known at every single step of your life. It means, that means primarily with the ones who have been given, you've been given primary responsibility for your kids, your wives, your husbands. But we often lose our focus on our primary duty in favor of the checklist of going about our lives. And we see this in Jacob's life. What is he concerned with? He says, that we may live and not die is not based on the word of the Lord or every word that he speaks, but it's based on the going to get the grain. Now, there's a very practical thing in, the, in this transaction, but he is so focused on just living this mundane life, this life striving after the nostalgia of a lost son and what he had, he's unable to see what he needs to be doing, what is being faithful, loving his neighbor, loving his sons, showing them what it means to be good men. And we do the same thing. Even though our primary vocation as believers in Christ is to make him known, we focus on the task and our checklist because it's easy. It's way easier to check a box, guys. We know this. It's way easier to make dinner. It's way easier to uh, just get up in the morning and make your bed, even though I don't make my bed. Uh, Confession. It's way easier to do those little things and to say, I am doing well than it is to make God known to your spouse when he or she is straying from the Lord. It is way easier to say, I read my Bible today, and then to condemn someone else for not reading theirs. Because you have missed the point. You're supposed to be sharing the glories of God with those who are around you. 
See, instead of remembering that God is supreme, that he is providential, that he works and wills all things that come to pass, and praising his name in the life, in the, in the midst of life, storms of life, we take up the mantle too often of the complainer. Too often as the numbers, the Israelites of the, in numbers, right? Too often do we complain about the good manna that God has given us, the blessings that God has provided for something like this. Why are you doing this to me, Lord? Why is this happened to me, Lord? Why aren't you giving me what I had, Lord? Why, why did you take my son from me? Why am I you know, languishing here? Why am I losing everyone? Why does it feel that I am alone and no one loves me? See, we become more and more self-interested and more and more self-centered as pain comes into our lives, typically. And that pain is really made so that you would look at Jesus, the one who comforts you and all that come to him. So we must do something that Jacob is not doing. Ready? We must remember our primary identity as God's sons and daughters. Primarily, he is not just the creator and the sustainer of all the world. He is the creator and the sustainer of you. That your salvation, your hope, your refuge, your strength is found in him. And your primary vocation, that thing that God has designed and saved you for, was primarily to bring your mind to think God's thoughts after him and to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it's also to relay that good news to those who are nearest to you, to love your neighbor as yourself. I'm sure like me, you have rough days. Yes, we have rough days. I have lots of rough days. Um, and I think you can relate to that. But sometimes, these rough days, I get focused on the things in front of me that are hard and circumstantial. They cause me to question, like, who I am and what I am. Uh, why am I here? Why am I not somewhere else better? What am I doing? Who, how could things be better? Am I the issue? Are you the issue? What good is it that I do anything? These questions run through my mind on hard days. Notice, I can get stuck too. But then I usually get this, a, a text out of nowhere from a good brother, a phone call of encouragement, or even better, just a word from my wife. And it usually goes something like this. I was reading such and such passages today, and I was thinking of you in our conversation that we had. This last one was from Psalm, 1, Psalm 16. And it opens like this, preserve me, O God, for it is in you do I take refuge. I say to the Lord, I praise his name, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you. It is only with the meditation on the scriptures, it is only with knowing who God is and what he has done will we get our eyes off of the circumstances in front of us. It is only knowing the pattern of grace that God has provided for you in his word that you can see past what is currently in front of you. If you do not know the words of the Lord, you will become stuck like Jacob, back in what you, might what you used to have, back in that really great experience, back in the old days. But not, that's not what's faithful. What we need to learn is to love God and walk faithfully and we do that by proclaiming his promises, knowing his good name, 
and loving those around us. So let me ask you, what do you do when you encounter pain? What do you do when you encounter a circumstance that just seems like you can't overcome it? Do you retreat and say, woe is me? Or do you praise God for what he is doing because there's something good coming? Either in glory or tomorrow. So are you stuck? Remember that you are God's child. Jacob was God's child. He was a chosen one. Remember that God has given you a mission to make his name known. Remember that God will supply the strength you need to serve him. Remember that the community of faith, the one that you're amidst right now, is designed to do just that. Point your eyes to Jesus so that we do not stay stuck in our sins and our trespasses or our what we deem as good. See, we need to have changed hearts that have no choice but to pursue God. But unchanged hearts, stuck hearts, can and will not, cannot and will not seek after the Lord. You are called primarily to know God and make him known. That is not what Joseph is, not what Jacob was doing. And it was killing him. Let, not, let that not be said of you. And we move on to the bulk of our text. In verse 6 and following, we see that hearts are tested. Just like unchanged hearts will, and will not and do not seek after, the, seek after the glories of God, tested hearts change when forgiveness and repentance takes place. See, God uses the famine in the land to test the hearts of the, of the brothers and Joseph. Joseph had been placed in the Garden of Egypt. And so far, he has expanded its borders and the blessings that God has given to Joseph so that they might be able to bless those who are in need. Joseph is act, acting exactly like he was supposed to, contrary to Jacob. But this is what I want us to see. Wisdom says in this passage that Joseph did the exact right thing in testing his brothers. Brothers come, they, they bow him, themselves down before him, and they fulfill the dream that he had 20 years earlier. Think about all the things that had to happen. All of the moments that God orchestrated to get them there. Think about all of the intricacies. Just think about this one. There are crowds of people. Verse 5 tells us, The sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came. For the famine was in the land of Canaan. And before this, that Joseph had set up storehouses in a whole bunch of cities. And his brothers come where? To his doorstep. What a wonderful providential God who works all things for his glory and our good. See, Joseph was the Lord of the land, but he was a Lord in submission to the Lord of lords. And he was trusting in God all of these steps. No doubt he had issues. No doubt he had problems. No doubt he was doubting. But he knew that God was working all things for his good. And he sees his brothers coming and he recognizes them. Recognize, that word recognize, or to identify in other places in Genesis, is used all over the scriptures. And you can see when somebody recognizes the Lord's work, they are always going towards change. Think about back to Judah and Tamar. Not too long ago, Judah and Tamar is a really 
crazy story. But when Tamar comes to Judah and says, whose are these? Whose ring is this? Whose staff is this? Whose cord is this? Judah does the right thing and says, she is more righteous than I. And she, he recognizes his fault in that whole story. Right? Recognition is how we see our own, that's it's another word to describe, to see our own sinfulness. And it moves us in toward a right understanding who God is. It's a big theme actually throughout Genesis. If you were to look up identify or identified or recognize, you'd see it over and over and over for the people of God. See, the brothers don't recognize Joseph because their eyes are shut to the Lord's workings. But Joseph recognizes his brothers. They do not recognize him. And this recognition makes him remember the dreams that he had. And he says the one thing that's extremely prudent, and it's a great way, no, don't do this, uh, to, to see if, if someone's going to be honest with you. You call them spies. Think about what a spy is, right? Spies come in. They go to somewhere to see uh, weaknesses and strong points of a city, okay? Nice and simple. They are going to see what they can exploit, right? And so Joseph does the right thing and doesn't expose himself as, hey, I'm Joseph. It's nice to see you guys. You're fulfilling the dreams. He wants to see something better. He wants to see if they have changed, and the best way to do that is to extract knowledge from them. He's no doubt wondering where his father is and where his brother is and where they are, where they've been, what they have done to his father and brother. And so the first answer they give is, no, we're all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he says, no, you are spies. And he said, they, in order to extract more information out of them, see, if they're not spies, then they're just going to give up everything, right? That's the hope. If you're not a spy and I'm the Lord of the land, you're going to tell me the truth no matter what else happens. And they say, we are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one is no more. Joseph said to them, as I said to you, you are spies. Because who knows if they're lying or not? Remember the last words that he heard from his brothers were sold. Betrayal. They were not, there was nothing good about them. Why would he trust untrustworthy men? And I'm going to ask you the same thing. Why would you trust an untrustworthy person? It's not that you can't gain that trust back. It's that they have proved themselves untrustworthy in the past. Do you understand? Joseph doesn't trust them, and he rightly doesn't trust them because their words have been terrible toward him. And so he uses this accusation of them being spies in a very wise way. He wants to see if they have changed, and so he extracts this, this, these uh, different pieces of information to see if it is possible that they have changed so far. Is it possible that his father is alive, that his brother is alive? Because guess what? If Joseph isn't there, who was the favorite? Benjamin. If Joseph's not there, who is Jacob worried about? Benjamin. And we see that at the end. He says, 
Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you will take my one son remaining? Hello? He has nine other sons in front of him. He's blind to what he has. But Joseph sees the possibility of change as they continue to give him more and more um, information. And instead of just releasing them back, he says, you're going to be thrown in prison. And I think that we have this tendency to say, man, this is harsh. Man, this, this is not what they deserve. But think about what's happening. He was thrown into a pit. He was sold into slavery, imprisoned. In a lot of ways, we're seeing Joseph test his brothers with all the trials that he had been tested with. We see the trial of being thrown into prison, you know, based on the sold into slavery, falsely accused. Were they falsely accused as spies? Yes. Uh, and then he, they endure prison, and he comes out the other side learning something more from them. He learned that they haven't changed that much, right? Because the hope was is that someone would step up, a leader would say, here I am, send me, let me go get my brother and I'll bring him back so we can all be released. But they didn't happen. So Joseph patiently waits three days later and he says, all right, I'm going to send all of you back and keep one here. And who does he retain? Simeon. Who was the eldest brother at the moment that he was sold into slavery? Simeon. And so not as, a re- not as retribution, but there he's trying to test them with will they leave Simeon in the hands of the Egyptians like he left, they left me in the hands of the Egyptians? See, the, the tests and the trials that he's putting them through are the exact same tests and trials that he's been through. Falsely accused, for, forgotten, imprisoned, sold into slavery. Will they sell him? Will they give him over? That's the question. But in the midst of this, you see him send the nine brothers back. He says, if your words will be verified, then you will bring me back, Benjamin, or your youngest brother. And they do something really heartbreaking. They actually recognize their sin. Right? They recognize what they have done to Joseph. It's not like they were putting all this together, guys. They weren't saying, oh, well, we sold him into slavery. Let's see if, and he's testing us to sell. No, no. There's something subconscious happening here. Some subconscious level that they, uh, that God was working in their hearts. And they finally reveal their guilty souls. And they say, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. They are on the road to recognizing something. Something great and powerful. Recognition of guilt and sin against another. This is how we become saved. Right? God himself changes our hearts so that we might recognize the guiltiness of our own souls. And just like on the third day he rose, he brought Jesus up from the grave as your substitute, as your uh, savior, as the one who we have to put our trust in, we have to first put our trust in the fact that he knows more about us than we know. And that is that we are sinners in need of that savior. The guilt and the acknowledgement of our sin is what we must have before we can make that next step. Right? And God himself gives us that grace. 
God has been gracious to Joseph and his brothers to bring them to the point. He's even gracious in the moment where he lets Joseph hear this confession. And Joseph's answer to this is weeping. Can you imagine hearing your brothers after 20 years? You've been languishing in prison. And he comes in and he, they say, they're not knowing that, they, that you can hear them. But you overhear the fact that they were wrong. That they needed, that they, they, are, they are guilty. And that they need something to save them from this distress. And then you hear something so dumb from your oldest brother. Well, I told you so. That's the worst kind of response you can give. When you're trying to show somebody the pattern of sin in their lives, you can't say, I told you so, when something bad happens. You have to say, look to God. Look to his grace. Make known his mercy, at which you have been shown that you are guilty, and you, in fact, need a Savior. And we know that Savior to be Jesus. See, Joseph, hearing this words, these words, weeps as the flood of pain comes back to him. And so, in the midst of this recognition, not only of the, the fact of who these brothers are, but of the fact that they are guilty and they know it, we want to see two things. First, that forgiveness starts in the person offended. So if you've been offended, if you've been sinned against, your heart needs to be changed to, so that you might be able to forgive. God has to show you that. God has shown Joseph that. I think that's part of this weeping. I think it's part of this outflow of emotion is the fact that he actually is now enabled to forgive because he knows that these people are not so bad. They're not so hardened against him. They're not so angry. They're not, they're not so unchanged that they cannot be saved. No, he trusts in the Lord and he says, okay, you've shown me that I can now forgive because they understand. But here's the deal. We have the spirit of God in us. We have this thing called the good news of the gospel. You don't need to know that somebody knows they're guilty in order to know that you need to be forgiving a forgiving person. Why? Because you have been forgiven everything. An infinite amount of rebellion against an infinite God. You have been forgiven that by Christ Jesus. You have been given the spirit of hope inside of you that you might be able to live in accordance with to, to what God has said. You understand that your guilt and your need for a savior is greater than anybody else's guilt that you can know. And so when we now, not Joseph knew that God was providential, God was working in his ways, but we now have the spirit of God in us and the word of God and the gospel of God. And now we cannot ignore the fact that when you are coming up against somebody who has sinned against you, it's demonstrable, you know it. Guess what your, your first reaction should be? Look at what you, not, not look what you did, but look what Christ has done for me. He has saved me from myself and my self-centeredness. He has saved me from my iniquities. And then you turn your eyes toward that person and say, I can forgive you because I have been forgiven. Jacob, Joseph is understanding that he can forgive now. Second realization and second you know, portion of this is that 
you must be aware of your own sin in order to receive forgiveness. These are the ingredients for reconciliation. You ready? Forgiveness and repentance. Have we seen repentance happen yet? No, we really haven't. But we've seen the first step to repentance, recognition of guilt and sin. And I think this overwhelming outpouring of emotion from Joseph is the recognition that they recognize, right? That they are guilty and that there's hope, that there's hope for being reconciled with them. If forgiveness requires repentance from the sinner and the forgiver needs to recognize how much they are a sinner and give forgiveness for the sinner, you see how this kind of works together. I know that this is probably confusing you as much as it's confusing me. You have to recognize on both sides that you have been given grace. And that reconciliation is possible because of what God has already done. So two common misconceptions. First, the world says forgive and forget. That's one, one side of this, right? Forgive and forget. Now, you know what? Move on. Know that he did something wrong. Move on. And then forget about it. Guess what? It's hard to forget being enslaved. It's hard to forget when somebody has done something directly against you because they don't like you. It's hard to forget deep wounds in our souls that cannot and will not be healed by forgetting. They'll just sit and fester. Cannot forgive and forget. And the other side of it says, never forgive anybody anything. There's a, a, an article in the New York Times that came out not too long ago, about a year ago. And it said this, uh, forgiveness is the way to hell. And why? Because you have to relive a whole bunch of the pain that it takes to forgive someone, right? You actually have to open up old wounds. And he's, this guy says, it's not worth it, guys. It's not worth forgiving others because it's just going to hurt you more. Guess what? This is, this is the world's way of looking at it. They would rather li live as there is nothing wrong than to acknowledge that something is wrong, right? And we do the same because we're trying to learn to be more like Jesus. But we also know that there is something majorly wrong. This op-ed saying that said also this, that forgiveness gives an opportunity for injustice to abound, to abound. So throw it away. Throw away this idea of forgiveness. It can't be done. The only way to be right is to be even. What does the Lord say? When your brother comes to you and he asks for forgiveness, how many times? 70 times seven. Does he mean 140 thou? Uh, however many that is, 49, sorry, 490. My wife, who's a math teacher, is asking me, what have you done? <laughs> the point is not that you have to do it only up to the 490th time, but that you forgive him forever because you have been forgiven the same. And so we do not hold things over people's heads. We do not forgive and forget. We never, and we definitely don't never forgive. These are both very unbiblical, very unchristian. In fact, the Bible's teaching is this, that you must forgive, not just for your own soul's health, but because it is a display of the glory of God in your life and the display of the gospel news that has been brought to you. If you do not give forgiveness, if you do not move on that pattern, that way of forgiveness, then what you are saying is that this life has nothing to do with what God has saved me from. 
It's a denial of the gospel inside of you. See, it is for the sake of our own souls and the display of God's mercy that we forgive. This will keep us from having the devil take a foothold in our lives. This will keep us from letting bitterness root itself so deep in our hearts that we cannot do anything but be angry and resentful. Bitterness binds us to a past that can only be uprooted by the power of reconciliation with God through Christ. And if you turn your eyes off of that gospel, if you turn your eyes off of the grace that you've been given, then you will miss it when it has the opportunity to come to be reconciled to your brothers. Or that you will miss the fact that God's glory is bound up in the joy of you knowing that you have salvation in this merciful God and what he has done. Actual forgiveness does not hang on to the right of judgment that may be right or necessary or to proclaim the guilty verdict of the other party. That is God's work. No, someone who has taken the first step in forgiveness will understand that the other person's guilt has no bearing on their position before God, but gives us hope that reconciliation is possible. It has been 20 years for Joseph to this point, and he had very few, very few reasons to hope that he would ever be reconciled to his brothers. 20 years to have the opportunity to see them. 20 years, 20. How many of you are 20 in the room? Are we, we have anybody 20? Well, you're, you're older than that, Bob, sorry. 20 years is really a blink of an eye for those of us who are getting older, and it's very long for those of us who have just been turned 20 or just, you know, working our way toward it. Is it not? But think about this, 20 years. That's 2,365 days. I'm not going to do the math. <laughs> That's 365 days of 24 hours. That's a lot of time. Time has passed. Time has healed nothing for Joseph. It is the recognition of God's providence and his plan that has brought him to this place that he might be able to forgive. See, the biblical teaching on forgiveness and reconciliation depends on the reality that both parties, the offender and the offended, must move toward one another because of the forgiveness they have in God. So, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with others, but that doesn't mean ignore the fact that there is something between you. Letting bygones be bygones and not opening up old wounds is not the way to reconciliation. You must deal with the pain that has been dealt. So I ask you this. Are, do you have a forgiving heart or is it embattled with bitterness? Do you find yourself getting angry when you think of a certain person? Or do you find yourself heartbroken because of what they don't know and understand? Are you, as a sinner, possibly, have you possibly sinned against someone else and you don't know it? Pray for a heart of repentance so that when those people come to you and they bring something to you that you can say, I'm sorry, forgive me, I have done wrong. This happens on both sides. Develop a forgiving heart, develop a repentant heart. Both are set in context of the gospel. Everyone is a sinner, everyone needs a savior, and now we have been saved to do something particular, which is to love our neighbor and to make God know, make his mercy and grace known. See, the testing of Joseph's heart, the testing of his brother's hearts, was brought about by God's providential hand, 
not by Joseph's desire, not by his brother's wants for food. That was God working all things for his good, for our good and his glory, for Joseph's good and his glory. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up. It's, this is a large passage. We could sit here all day. Uh, but I want you to understand something. If you're like Jacob or like Reuben, notice Reuben's just following in the pattern of Jacob, and say, nothing has changed. I'm, I'm not changed. I'm still 20 years before this. I'm stuck in my own realities. You will not experience the grace of God. You will not experience the love of the Father. You will miss the good times that God has planned for you and the good things that God has, has put you in for nothing because you have brought yourself pain. So what are we to do with this passage? Number one, I've got four points, three points of application, ready? Number one, believe that God is using your pain and your circumstances for your good and his glory. If you do not believe that God is doing those things, you will only see the bad and not what God is doing. And while you may not see or ever truly know why something has happened or is happening to you, know that this is meant to point you to Jesus, his comfort, his healing hand, his glory. Point number two of application. Examine yourself to see if you are walking by faith or by fear. Joseph was walking by faith. Jacob was walking in fear. Jacob was walking in fear that he might lose something else. Joseph was, only had the opportunity to walk in faith and take the next step and to see what God would do. So are you clinging to things of the past? Are you longing for something that is gone or taken away in an untimely fashion? See, living in the past, living in the hurt, living in the pain, living in the doubt, or even living in the joy of yesteryear will inhibit your walk today, will inhibit your uh, your profession, your confession of Christ before men today. Learning how, to, learning how faithful God has been to you and to his people, even in the midst of all of life's trials, is how you overcome living in the past. It's how you live by faith today. Living by faith means learning who God is and how God acts, and then walking in those promises that he has made to you as his child. Fundamentally, you have been saved for a purpose but you have been saved to a God that says, I will never leave nor forsake you. But to bring you home through this light momentary affliction to glory. Application point number three. Desire true reconciliation between those you have hurt, those who have hurt you, and those who you potentially could have harmed in some fashion. Long for the day that true reconciliation can come. That's the day of hope. There's a story of a woman I just heard. Um, she and her mother-in-law were very, very similar. And she and her mother-in-law could not get along. Thanksgivings were hard. Christmases were harder. It didn't matter what was going on. They were butting heads. And when the opportunity came for reconciliation to happen between them, the daughter in law did not try to be reconciled. And the mother-in-law did. The pain which this mother-in-law endured for the next 15 or so years before she passed was something that she didn't wear on her sleeve, but she held in hope 
of glory. And it wasn't until she did pass that the daughter saw that there was a true reconciliation to come. That the things that stood in the way between them butting heads all the time, whether it was their wants or desires or needs, it didn't matter that when they finally saw Jesus, they could be truly reconciled to one another. So your reconciliation, the point of that is to say, may not come tomorrow with your enemies, with those who have hurt you. Your reconciliation may come when you see them in glory because the one who has reconciled you to himself is the one who's faithful to reconcile you to one another. Eventually it will happen. Eventually all those barriers will be removed. Time is a, a way of teaching us that God's plans are perfect, that we need heart change, and that we need to be more like Joseph and not like Jacob, right? Because Jesus good news, the good news of Jesus Christ is greater than anything that you could ever obtain for yourself. But it's a grace of God that has been given to you. It is a mercy of God that he has revealed it. And it is your responsibility and your vocation and your, your joy to show it to others. So with that said, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask him to make that true of us today. Oh